Hello, my name is Jack Deverson, Managing Director of Evidence-Based Education, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Education podcast. As part of our day-to-day work, we talk to leaders in three fields of education, in policy, research and practice, and we try to bridge the gap between those three fields. Whether you like to listen to podcasts on your morning commute, while you're out for a run at the weekend, or when you're sitting in your office, we thought there's some real value to be had in sharing this series of talks and interviews. So without further ado, we'll start with the first in this series. This one was recorded at our first ever Assessment Lead Programme residential course in August 2017, held in Durham. As part of the course, we had a few evening speakers, and one of these was the EEF senior researcher, Jonathan Sharples. So in this episode, he talks about his vision for an evidence-based education system. You can find out more information about the Assessment Lead programme on our website, and you can also download a copy of his slides in the description of this episode or from our website, evidencebased.education. We hope you enjoy. How, how are your heads? About to explode after like <laughs> four days of <laughs> assessment? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I, this rather grandiose title of a vision for an evidence-based um, education system or... Um, yeah, so I, I thought, in reality, I'll, I'll just talk about some things that I think might be of value in terms of moving us on, in terms of thinking about how evidence can inform um, kind of policy and practice. Um, I've... So I've got this going to work. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough to work for the last 10 years with a woman called um, Estelle Morris. By the way, stop, make this a conversation. You know, if you want to kind of dive in and interrupt, then, then please do. Um, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to work with this woman called Estelle Morris over the last um, 10 years since I've been involved in this field of evidence-based policy and practice. And I guess those in the UK might, might know Estelle, but those outside. She, Estelle was Secretary of State for Education under Tony Blair, probably at the end of, yeah, regularly here, the best Secretary of State. And, and probably because she's the only Secretary of State we've had who's actually been a teacher. She's a teacher for 20 years. And, um, and she's committed to education, unlike most education secretaries who dive in and dive out and kind of move around. So she's a long-standing interest in education. And I, I heard her described what this whole, this whole thing is about when she said, you know, you know you've been around a long time in education where you see the same idea, not just appear once, not twice, but for the third or for the fourth time. And she's got loads of examples of that. And I think she's talking about project-based curriculum in primary schools, which is a continuous thing. It comes in and out. Says, and he said, that is frustrating in itself. But what's even more frustrating is when the, the pendulum comes back in again, it's as though we've never looked at this issue before. It's like as though, you know, and we just start from scratch. And, and, and really, what I think, or what, we, what she thinks this is about, is just a way of standing on the shoulders of previous progress. You know, like a really reasonably humble aim of, of having long-term objectives and trajectories in education and a system that can, you can learn and build on what you know from before, really. And I think that is really what this is about. Um, and other areas, healthcare, education, um, engineering, are far from perfect, but they are, they've, they've been at it for longer than education. You know, there are systems in place by which, over time, you can innovate and build on evidence. I think that are more 
woven into how those fields work. So that's kind of what it's about. It's also about culture change as well. You know, in it, I, I used to be a teacher and I was a researcher, then I was a teacher, and it's, it, even from a research background, just remarkable how separate those two worlds were. You know, it's, it's odd that, you know, we don't move fluidly between roles of research, practice, and training. If we were nurses or midwives or doctors, we'd be much happier doing some, you know, delivering a baby, then doing some training, then maybe involved in a research project. You know, they're very separate worlds. So part of this is about culture change for me and how you can bring um, you know, those two worlds a bit closer together. Um, a lot has gone on, certainly in the UK, in the last um, kind of five, ten years in this area. And I think the big shift for me is, is it moved from being an academic agenda. So this used to be lots of academics sitting around going, oh, you know, what can we do about research? Where the momentum is being carried much more by the profession and policymakers and the users of research. So, you know, we've had papers on... This was quite influential. There's a paper on you building evidence into education that was done by government. It's been a cross-sector thing, so we've had both all political parties talking about new initiatives in this area. Um, there's these what work centres. So I work at the Education Endowment Foundation, which is one of those. But you've got things like a Chartered College of Teaching, which is a new initiative that's trying to act as a bridge for research into practice in a more formalised way. Um, you've got things like Research Ed, where you know, 700 teachers turn up on a Saturday and on their own time and talk and engage with research. So it's moved from being a kind of, you know, niche academic thing, to, which is fantastic. Um, so there's been a lot happening. Um, and I guess I was going to say, right, where now? Where's the next? Where do I see you know, we, we go from here? Um, and what, what would be useful to move it on further? So this is my a bit of my wish list, but I thought if I talked about all my wish list, <laughs> you'd, you'd walk out. But I'm going to talk about, <laughs> I'll talk about a, a bit of my wish list. Um, okay, so the first one is we need a throughput of useful evidence, a pipeline, really pipeline of, of useful evidence coming through. Um, and, okay, we're just going to, so we're going to go into just a, a little exercise to try and get into what useful evidence is or could be. And these are two projects that we funded at the Education Endowment Foundation. And we did trials, large-scale randomized controlled trials of these two interventions. And one was called Chatterbooks, which was a, a reading intervention. It was a kind of reading for pleasure thing. You had, um, I think it was graduates, trained graduates came in. They helped, took a, a pupil out of lessons, literature lessons, did an hour of kind of reading with them. Um, quite intensively. Um, and then we did another project, quite similar, called Accelerated Reader, which had, it had reading going on, but the, the children did a test to, to benchmark their performance, and then they choose an age-appropriate book, and there's, again, there's some structured um, reading around that. And then they have some quizzes around it as well, so it's a bit, more, a bit more interactive. And we did trials of both of these. Which one do you think had the biggest impact? Who thinks it's Chatterbooks? Who thinks Accelerated Reader? Pardon? Oh, he stole you. This is my slide, Quigley. Did he, did he put this slide up? Okay, okay. All right, okay, okay, fine. Okay, fine. So, as you know already... <laughs> Um, 
we did trials of this, and so, okay, so the, the, my point was, we did, so you, we did a tr you did a trial of Chatterbooks, and you looked at the learning, and the learning improved. So the kids learned, did it, did, learning did improve. It just so happened that the control schools improved more, right? So, so it, did, it did improve their learning, it just didn't improve their learning better than I mean, kids will always improve their learning. Just get, even getting older, they're going to improve their learning. So it didn't work better than, than doing the alternatives, um, whereas Accelerate, Accelerator Reader did. And you know, you'll, you'll know this now, that you know, a typical way in which you look at impact in schools, or in the system, in fact, is you do something, you see a change, and then you try and attribute that change to the thing that you've done. And of course, it may be something completely different. It might be that. Um, but it might be something um, different. So the EF has, has really embraced this idea of doing large-scale randomized trials where we take a group of people who, want, who are interested in doing a particular approach, we split them into two groups, usually randomly, almost, almost, almost randomly, and then you deliver an intervention to one of them. The control group typically carry on doing what they were going to do before, but they might deliver something else, actually. And then you look for the difference in the attainment between those two groups. And of course, that is the way in which you can start attributing that change that in, in, in outcomes to that, um, to that particular intervention that you've introduced. Um, and you know, so this idea of randomized trials have become quite a big deal, and you get stuff like this, which is, we well, to go through, but you get these hierarchies of evidence where you, know, you, you start off here at the bottom where you just have a you know, some idea of evidence, and then you gradually go up there, and level five is where you get large-scale randomized trials and, 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 you know, big evidence and stuff like that. But I'm going to argue that these are actually quite unhelpful in some kind of way, in, in some ways. Um, EF has done a lot of, of these trials. You know, it, it's, um, we've done 145 projects. We funded 145 projects involving over one-third now of all schools nationally involved in, a, in an EF-funded trial, nearly just about to get to our millionth pupil. We're thinking about having a celebration, right, where we're going to, the millionth pupil, they're going to walk in and there's going to be like fanfares going on. <laughs> like, you're the millionth pupil. Like, um, but, but, you know, a lot of people said schools won't get involved in trials, they're unethical, they won't do them. A lot of those objections were coming from researchers who had vested interest in not doing these types of research. So schools have embraced this agenda wholeheartedly. Our best projects in every sense, in statistically in terms of impact, are school-led projects. So out of these 145 projects, the, the, the best ones from in, many, in many respects are the ones that are coming from, from schools. So this is you know, starting to get the engine moving where you capture the innovations that are coming out of, out of schools. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a really good headway in terms of doing you know, more rigorous large-scale evaluations. But We've also found there are lots of limitations to doing just doing trials. So we did two trials um, of two projects, actually, that, uh, that Durham University have had a lot of background in, to, uh, looking at different approaches to peer tutoring. Do you, so do you know about peer tutoring, basically, is where you get pairs or sometimes groups of pupils, you put them together, and then they teach each other using some quite structured frameworks. It's not just, you know, go over there and work together. There's the structure to how they kind of interact. Um, and there's lots of different ways in which you can do that. And the evidence at large level suggests 
you know, it's a pretty positive thing. Moderate impact for very low costs based on extensive evidence, you know. So, so this comes from our teaching and learning toolkit, which I'll talk about in a bit. But so there's quite, you know, there's good evidence that this is something to work out. So we funded very early on two different projects looking at peer tutoring, one in maths, one in reading. Won't go through those details, but it was a large trial, 120 classes. Um, but it was a pretty light-touch intervention. It was only 20 minutes per week. So they're only doing the, 20, the peer tutoring for 20 minutes a week. And actually, if you look at the coaching there, they had, the t teachers only had one and a half days training and support. So it's pretty light-touch, I think, that is, in terms of the amount of support they had to develop. It's actually... I've done these before in classroom. I don't know if you've ever tried it. It's hard. You've got, like... 20 interactions going on at the same time, you're trying to manage everything. It's, quite, it's really quite a difficult thing to be a teacher to get this working right. And I, I, think, I don't think this was personally enough training to do this. But uh, anyway, we did a trial of that, and it basically had no impact. Contrary to, so, and then we did another trial of, of a similar approach in mass, and that had no impact either. Um, and, you know, it was, it, that was a bit of a shock especially for me, I've been telling every school that peer tutoring is the best thing in sliced bread, you know, and, um, and we did these trials that didn't, did, in this case, didn't show the effect. But the problem was, at this point, is that we, we really, at that time, we were just doing these quantitative evaluations, and we weren't doing any really in-depth qualitative work to understand how or why or what was going on or what people were doing with this or how it was being implemented. So... We basically couldn't interpret the findings. We, we didn't know. We didn't know whether or not the intervention was no good. We didn't know whether or not the, uh, it had not been implemented properly. Didn't know whether or not we'd not trained people enough. We didn't really... We knew people kind of liked it because that's all we kind of asked, but we didn't know anything really about what was going on. So you get this result that seems a bit of a puzzle. You know, the evidence says it's good. You get this result that says... And you don't know what to do with it. So... So really what this shows is that just doing the trials you know, gives, isn't good enough either. You need to do all this rich research around more qualitative work to find out you know, what's actually underneath the bonnet of the intervention, not just what's the impact. And so you know, how does the theory play out in practice, all these kind of questions? So where I think we need, to, where well, certainly we've gone, but I think where the field needs to go to is a much more, um, I guess, pluralistic or approach to research, which is you just pick the right tool for the right job. Right? So if your question is around, does this thing work better than something else, then sure, randomised trials are going to be probably your best way of doing that. If your question is, how does it work, does it matter, they'll give you nothing on that, <laughs> really. Well, not, yeah, very, very little, if you like. So... What this is, you know, where I think that we need to go is be much more precise around saying, right, what do you want to know? What method do you use? And be much more kind of open to picking the right tool for the right job. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of, so that's why I said that, you know, that hierarchy with level one, two, three, four, and five is a bit unhelpful because if you're interested in questions around how it works, it's definitely not level five. It's, it's, it's not. So... Different things have different purposes. So that, I guess that's kind of more where my message is. And I think we need to... The next phase, after doing lots of large-scale evaluations, is now to get into really understanding how and why and which way it's working, I think. Oh, the last... I, mean, the, I don't agree with, by the way, with everything on this slide, but the last column there, you know, you, that is... 
that's, I think, slightly overplayed. <laughs> but it's basically saying that systematic reviews are the answer, are the answer to everything, <laughs> which is not quite true. But, um, but nevertheless, just, just hold that thought, because it's, um, it kind of relates to the next thing, which is, well, how do you develop more sophisticated users of this information that's kind of coming through? You know, what, what, what is a more, where do we need to go in terms of getting more critical, knowledgeable, sophisticated users of, of research? And um, one of the things that we try to, we're trying to get across is this information about trying to understand different types of methods. And one of the bits is trying to understand why reviews and systematic reviews in particular are really, really useful things to do. And, and this is, a, this is a, a nice slide, a set of studies that show, that illustrate this point. So basically this, this slide shows a range of different foods and drinks, and then the graph on the bottom, the, the, the scale on the bottom, and the, basically shows whether or not that, the study, so I'll start again, I'll really explain that badly. There's foods and drinks on the side, each of the red dots are individual studies, right? And the line in the middle um, if the study was to the right of that line, it's, that study suggested that particular food or drink caused cancer, and if it was to the left of the line, it suggested it protected against cancer. So you can see, obviously, I mean, they've not shown every study, but there's lots of, there's tons of studies that have looked at this issue. Um, what's the first thing you see? Very happy about that. Yes, great. I mean, guaranteed that. <laughs> Very happy. Yes. So, yeah, the first thing, wine's at the top. Um, yeah, right. So, so every, everything has something on that side. So if you wanted to, and you, know, you were working at the Beef Promotion Association, is it one of those things? You could, go and, you could go and find that study, right? Those two studies, plot them out, peer-reviewed study, put them on a thing. Research shows beef protects against cancer. Or you could, you know, the anti-drinking lobby could go and find the, the, those three studies on the right-hand side and, and show the other way. So it just, it just really illustrates the danger in focusing on individual studies. And that is just, you know, research has natural variation, you know, across it. So is it all useless, though? No, it's not, is it? Because you, you, you can see that, on, on average, wine tends to be protective, and, you know, generally beef tends to... Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, is it a, yeah, so I think, so basically one is, no, it does, because, that, yeah, that's right, that's right, because that's a two times, that's a two times positive impact, that's a half, that's right, isn't it, yeah, yeah, so that's a, point two is five, five, a fifth of, of one, ten, five is five times one, so it does work, doesn't it? think so. Um, what, what, what is missing from this graph to really give you any insight to be able to do something a bit more about? What, what do you have no idea about on this? So nothing about the quality of the studies, do you? You have no idea. Were they any good? What was the methods? What was, who was it? Was it, you know, who did them? Was it, was it the Beef Appreciation Association that had done all these studies on here? Maybe it, maybe it was, you know, so you know nothing about that. So, so, and actually, that, that, that's a good way of, you know, that, that's why that slide here is a bit unhelpful because there are loads of really bad systematic reviews. <laughs> and there are loads, so just because just it's a, I mean, a systematic review is, 
a very vague term anyway, but even if it's just a review, there's lots of really bad reviews where people just find all the studies they were going to talk about anyway. So, but, so yeah, you need more information about the nature of studies, but nevertheless, looking at the, the, the general kind of themes that emerge across them is, is um, certainly a valuable thing. And, and generally, as a profession, we're not very good at that still, or even as a society, are we? You know, the, the male, we always say this, a study shows this, and a study shows this, and and we're just very, got to be very careful to make sure we look at the round around that. So I think a more sophisticated user research can able to look at those individual studies but still relate them to the wider context. I think there's that. You've got to be able to look narrow and broad at the same time. Um, I'm, this, this, I'm, my talk is basically no going to fit to touch. Should we just keep going? Yeah, yeah that's all. all right. Do you want to do a quiz? Do a quiz? So this is a, a quiz on... Um, Bits of the, the, so these are, these are kind of true, these are questions that come out of the Education Endowment Foundation's Teaching and Learning Toolkit, which I'll show in a second. Um, and the, the toolkit kind of summarizes evidence from a whole range of different education areas. And, and these are questions that where there's evidence within the toolkit. Um, and there are also, these are also questions that we included in quite a large-scale national survey of, of researchers, schools' use of research, engagement with research. And at the end, Kevin, my boss, said, look, we can't just ask them about what they think. Let's just ask them also what they know as well. So when we got in a bit of... People pushed back on it. He said, no, no, come on. We should, if they're saying the research engaged, let's see whether or not... You know, even if it's these indicators, let's see whether or not... So anyway, so we put these questions in. There were a few more. Go on. to the person next to you, have a chat. T a couple of minutes. Do you think these are true or false, these statements? <laughs> How are you getting on? Yep. Right, okay. I used, I used to do this as a kind of show of hands thing, but it got a bit heated. And so let's just do it on a... Let's do it on a... Who's, whichever sounds loudest. Let's go off that. Um, who, who thinks... Um, there's evidence to suggest that drinking six to eight glasses of water per day improves pupil outcomes? As opposed to... No, as opposed to six to eight, <laughs> just as it is. It's, so, you know, is there evidence that drinking that amount of water or, you know, what you might call, you know, a reasonably moderate amount of water? This, you know. The reason this is on there is this is what we're told, isn't it? We get, we get this a lot. This is a kind of, this has become a bit of a, a uh, yeah, it's a, you hear this six to eight glass of water. Quite a, right. True or false? False. False. You're correct. You're going to get all these right, I know you are. Um, yeah, so we found one study showing a link between um, drinking water and, and, and attainment. We've done the Red Sea, under kind of Dead Sea, 40 degree heat. They basically nearly, you know, I don't know how they got the ethics for doing it, but basically they, they, they dehydrated the kids and then they gave them a drink of water and showed that it impacts on their learning. But under normal circumstances, apart from just being alive, the, the, the evidence on drinking this amount of water is, is, is not linked to attainment. Lots of you know, reasons why you need to drink water, but it's not, a, it's not going to improve kids' attainment, I don't think. Um, feedback on how pupils complete a task is more effective than general praise. Yes. That's true. Yep, correct. Yep. Um, it taps into a lot of Carol Dweck's stuff around, you know, just, just generic praise that's not linked to any kind of effort or activity can actually create quite fragile learners. You know, that they kind of develop this 
quite fragile sense of, of how they see themselves. Um, so, you, you know, this idea of linking um, feedback and, and praise to, to effort, particularly, um, is, is certainly more evidence-based. Reducing class size is one of the most cost-effective ways to increase learning. Oh. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, this, is, this is quite a nice... So this is a good example of the next point I'm going to make, which is you can reduce... The, you, so you can reduce class size in an evidence-based or a non-evidence-based way. And the, there, is evident, there is quite good evidence, actually, that reducing class size can increase attainment. But it's not a cost-effective way of doing that because... The evidence suggests that you've, only, you've got to reduce the class size by a decent amount, you know, at least five, typically. And it's only when you decrease it by a lot that the teaching changes and therefore the learning changes. Because what often people do around class size is they might just change it by one or two. That doesn't change really the teaching. It doesn't change the interactions in the classroom. And surprise, surprise, the, the learning doesn't change. So if you change class size... You need to do it purposefully alongside thinking, what are we going to do differently around... It's not the class size that changes the outcomes. It's the changes in pedagogy that result as a, as a result of... Uh, so people change the class... It's like iPads. You know, it's, it's, people buy the iPads or the technology and think that will improve the outcomes. Of course, it's not what you can... It, what it, it's what it opens up in terms of your being able to do in terms of teaching that changes the outcomes, if used right. So class size, you know, is a really good example where this, 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 what we're going to talk about in a minute, is the devil is in the detail. And the problem is, is that reducing class size by that much is really expensive. And also, you need a, a bigger pool of good teachers to be able to maintain the quality because you've got smaller classes. So, whereas, you know, they tried to do this in California and it failed miserably because they just didn't have, they're smaller classes, but worse teachers teaching smaller classes. So, so yeah. You can, you can do it in an evidence-based and non-evidence-based way. Grouping pupils by ability improves outcomes for all pupils. No? You're good, you lot. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, it's a kind of zero-sum game. I think it's a general rule. So you maybe get some gains for your higher-attaining pupils at the expense of learning for your lower-attaining pupils. That's generally how it's perceived. I once told that this to Nick Gibb, our school's minister, and we were shown the door. <laughs> <laughs> Quite politely. No, that's, we don't agree with that. Bye-bye. <laughs> um, didn't like it. Um, although, amazingly, in the, in the Conservative Party manifesto in 2010, they found... They, they, it, was like the, it was just like the cancer slide. They found this study from 1981 of this random person that had shown a link between group and... A bit, and, and, for, and they stuck it in the Conservative Party manifesto. And it was you know, policy-based evidence, not evidence-based policy. Pick, they picked a policy and found some evidence to back it up. And, and we're all, and, but we're all, we're all um, tend to do that, you know? We, we're, it's not, it's not, that's, that is having a go, but we all do do that. We all pick an idea, then look for evidence behind it. It's very hard to be, there's this phrase called equipoise, which is a much more neutral kind of state when you're looking at, um, at things. Um, um, there's lots to talk about on that. Um, um, but the last one, I won't. the last one, individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning style. So there's this idea that, you know, oh, wow, okay, I didn't even ask. <laughs> right, okay, so this was, yeah, this has been something uh, that government, this was, in a, this was government policy under Labour, it was in the national strategies, it was being sent to schools as, a, as, a, as a, you know, an instruction of how to teach was to do this, just to kind of, you know, just to... It, wasn't a, it was pretty clear, and we, we lobbied quite hard to get some of that changed. 
Right, so you've just done those questions. These, and we, we did this survey a couple of years ago. These are the percentages that people got right. Is it, is it? Right. So these are, the, these are the number, this is how many people, out of this quite a large sample, got those questions right. So 90% of the profession thought drinking six to eight glasses of water improved learning outcomes. 70% of people we spoke to, 75, believed, still believed in VAK learning styles as a way of, you know, so just to get, so, I mean, uh, teachers, no, no, this is teachers, this is, it was a mix, it was, it was, it was a mix of senior leaders, teachers, it was, it was a sample, um, you know, so, so, you know, there's still a, there's a long way to go on some pretty fundamental, and I, I do think this has changed, actually, in the last two or three years. I do, you know, I think, uh, pardon? Yeah, I think that's right, and I think, I think, I think, actually, some of these messages have got through, I think, and I think they, you know, it's... No, 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 these, I mean, these examples are picked to slightly kind of, you know, they're a bit counterintuitive, there are kind of... There are myths that are in the system, but it just shows how stubborn those myths are. These ideas get hooked on, and they're really hard to shift. And so, you know, a sophisticated user research is about understanding methods, but it's also about just reading the bloody research, you know, to be honest. It's, it, it is just something about just engage with it <laughs> a bit as well. Um, okay. So this is the toolkit. Is there, who's, who's, who's seen this? Um, I, I heard a teacher describe the toolkit as a witch magazine for education research, <laughs> which is, I don't know, in whatever country, do you have, you have these um, uh, kind of, the, the, the magazines, if you're buying a fridge or a kind of toaster, you get an independent review that will look at how good that is, and there'll be some evidence, and there'll be a percentage about, you know, 68, so there'll be, it's an independent kind of, and, and in a way, I think it's, it's doing something similar here. It's an independent, hopefully authoritative summary of the evidence on tons of stuff that we do in schools. Um, there's an early years one as well. Um, and if you haven't looked at it, do go and have a look, because this has been probably the thing that's changed the EF's perception in the sector, to be fair. I think this is the thing that most people know the EF about. Um, so there's just tons of stuff on here, you know. Feedback, I, yeah, it's too much to go into. There's information on the cost, the, the confidence, those are, those are supposed to be padlocks, they always think they look more like handbags, and, but that's the confidence we think you can put in the research in this area, and then an indication of the average, crucially, the average month's progress that these approaches have been shown to make. Um, and, you know, it, its attractiveness is its, its, its strength is its accessibility, but so is its weakness is also its accessibility, because what happens, oh, I've got another... Yeah, so what happens with this? I haven't put it on here, but you can plot this, this, this information. What people go is, they go, right, okay, we're not going to do any of that. That's all rubbish. We're going to only do this up here. Easy. We're doing feedback. We're doing metacognition. Great. Tick, tick. We're all good. Happy, happy days. Let's, let's uh, fire all the teaching assistants. Let's, you know. And there's just this very shallow engagement. Because it's accessible, you can engage with this in a very shallow way. And... You know, I, I actually don't think that this, apart from just being an entry point that's quite compelling, I think this page is nearly useless, actually, I'd, I'd argue. And it's only when you get to the next level that starts... So if you click on any one of these things... So, okay, so teaching assistance here is the best example of, of, to, to, that, that we keep using. This, this basically... 
was the area where we've had most pushback from the profession when this came out. That it was actually at zero months when it was originally published, basically showing that TAs are not having an impact in, in English schools. And we had lots of challenge against that. Um, but if you click on that thing, you get to this page, and this is where I think it starts to get more useful. What you find that that average position, that kind of zero months, hid a polarized evidence base. And basically, that evidence base was showing that poor, typical, Poor deployment of TAs where they're unstructured, they're unsupported, they're just kind of assigned to the naughty kids in the corner, left to get on with it. It's having a negative impact on the attainment of those pupils. It's not the TA's fault at all. They're, they're trying to do their best, working in very difficult circumstances. And, um, but that, that, that has a negative impact. But there's actually a pretty strong evidence base to show that when you train and deploy in UTAs in a more structured way, you give them the right support, you give them you know, the right, then they can have a, a, a positive impact on attainment. And we've funded eight trials now that have shown that now. We've shown that pretty unequivocally now, that you can get TAs to have an impact on attainment. But if you look at this, you don't see any of that, right? So the, the devil is in the, the, the message here is that the devil is in the detail. So if we're going to move on from this agenda, we need to get into that detail. Um, that yeah, sure. When you, earlier on you said that didn't have an effect, but I put the one slide, it said plus five months, and there it says plus six months. So these, okay, so these move, right? So actually, so these, so, so, that's, so that's great. So, yeah. so this is a dynamic resource that changes as evidence changes. But and yeah, it's dropped one. So actually, so this has dropped down from plus six to plus five on the back of some of this evidence that EF has created. The, the, the TAs one has gone up on the back of some of the evidence that we've... I mean, a lot of this is EF evidence, actually, that's shifting this, but... but um, right, but we, the reality is, is that in... So a lot of... We don't have enough UK evidence on what is good peer tutoring, what's, and, how, and more importantly, how do you implement it? It's the same with feedback. You know, feedback, most schools know about feedback, but very schools know how to do it. Not in a clear, differentiated way across different subjects. They know the very principles, or they, you know, the, they know the principles, but they can't action that in a really kind of clear way. So we don't have enough insights on how to do feedback. We know enough about the ideas. And I think we're in a similar position with peer tutoring as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a subtle message. We're not, you know, you, you can't, you don't want to throw, the studies are important, but... Uh, but they need to be seen in the wider kind of context. Um, and I say this is where this challenge comes, because you've got to look at the individual studies, but still also look at the wider evidence base. You've got to be able to kind of, you see what I mean? You've got to be able to keep the big picture, but still notice the evidence that's coming through. I think that's probably the best way to say it. And I think we've got quite a long way to go as a profession to do that. As a general rule, you know, the, the idea is, you know, it's a toolkit, it's not a recipe book. Don't use it as a kind of blueprint, you know, dig, definitely dig into what the, deep what the evidence says. Don't look at the top level. And we use this analogy quite a lot about trying to isolate what are the active ingredients, what are the core components of that particular approach. If you're doing peer tutoring, what are the essential elements that you have to get going in peer, tutorings, um, in peer tutoring to make it work? And also what are not so you can understand where to be tight around the things that are important and where to be loose and flexible around the things that are not. You know, which things can be adapted and which things should be adopted. You know, so we use this phrase, faithful adoption, intelligent adaption. Know where, know where to be specific and where to be broad. You know? and, 
And you can only get that if you really get into looking at the evidence in more detail. You, can't get, you won't get those insights from just looking at the high level. So, yeah. so we need to, add, you know, the next phase would be to get a more, a deeper engagement with this research. One way in which we're trying to kind of support that work is, is do some of the interpretation ourselves a bit more. So we've moved into this direction of doing guidance reports, which if you like, get off the fence and say, at this moment, this is what the research says around teaching assistant deployment, for example. So this is what I did this report with some people at, at the Institute of Education. And we came up with these seven, oh, this is not, this is a literacy one, but it's the same thing. We've got these, you know, eight quite clear recommendations. Um, this one's actually the literacy one, but, you know, it's trying to get off the fence and say, if you're doing literacy um, in, in early, in key stage one, you should be aiming to factor in these eight different elements to it you know it's around a blend between phonics and comprehension it's around you know really effective diagnosis on the go it's, it's and and these have gone down well actually and these are kind of tools to try and try, we've tried to done some of the heavy lifting around the interpretation as well but i still don't think anything beats going back into it and looking at it at, um, at yourself okay so where are we going we're going okay 50 minutes so, that, so that's some insights on a more sophisticated and kind of, you know, engaged research users. I guess that leads on to the next thing, which is, whilst we've, we've definitely made headway in that, Alex and I were talking about this before, you know, there's, there's been a shift to, to now thinking that engaging with evidence is not just something that the geeks do over there. It's something that's become a bit more of a, you know, mainstream expected sort of thing in some kind of way and that has been that's a big we shouldn't underestimate that shift i think where we struggle to go is what does this look like at, at, a, at a school level what does this actually mean for a, a, an evidence-informed school you know not just an evidence-informed teacher but how does this work in terms of a system and as an organization um have you looked at have you looked at this yet um so this is some very uh, people that know this very well in the in the room because they've sweat blood and tears of it over this, this cycle over the last um, few years. But this was a, a, an evidence-informed school improvement process that um, that we've I guess start was we developed it with other people at the at the EF. And um, again, if you go to our website, you can you can yeah yeah you can get all this stuff um, and. I guess what we were trying to do here is, is, as well as focusing just on the practices, was also realizing that, you, you know, to, 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 to be able to do something with those, you also have to have a set of evidence-informed processes by which you can look at your data and decide what are your priorities, you know, a process by which you can start identifying possible solutions. Once you've, once you've looked at the evidence to give you some insights on there, obviously combined with your professional expertise, you can then think, right, we're going to do something. How do you then give it you know, a fair go? How do you implement it effectively? How do you then evaluate the impacts of those changes that you've made? And then how do you embed, you know, if you do see something working, how do you take that from something that you know, we know to something that we do? How do you actually really then weave that into the fabric of how that organization operates? And, and um, I guess when we did this, we, were, we, were, we almost assumed that this was what schools did. Even in the sense of having, even forget the evidence bit, but even that there was this process in place. And we've quite quickly realized that school improvement is quite a random event or activity. 
an event, actually, probably not even a process. It's an event that happens every now and then, probably when Ofsted come, you know. So, so that's a bit rude. But so there's something here around, you know, starting to think what, what a set of processes look like within a school as well as just uh, as well as engaging with the evidence. So, so oh, pardon me. So, you know, this is worth, worth a look. We've got resources that fit onto all of these um, these stages now. So we've got a kind of families of schools database that can help you look at this. Stuart's um, done a, an assessing, um, um, what's, it, what's it called? Assessing yeah, some modules, there's some online modules that you can start looking at that. We've got things like the toolkit and the guidance reports from here. The, have, you, have you talked about the do-it-yourself evaluation guide yet? Uh, yeah? No? no? So there's, so the, there's a do-it-yourself evaluation guide. Um, that, that can help you with this. The, the gap for me has been here and here um, around putting something into practice. So, and this is kind of my interest at the moment is, right, fine, you've decided you're going to do something. How do you, do, how, how do you actually get it implemented? And um, I think that's where often, you know, you can look at, this is where I think people struggle. Um, and I know that because it's the same from different sectors. So there's loads of examples from different sectors where there's a mismatch between what people know and what people do. Um, a really nice example of this is hand-washing practices in hospitals, which it wasn't too long ago. It was, I think it was the fifth biggest cause of death in the US was people going into hospital, getting secondary infections, and then dying. Right? So the fifth biggest cause of death was, was, was a result of essentially poor hygiene practices in, in hospitals, remarkably. Now, that's changed quite considerably um, over the last kind of 20 years. Um, because, and what was interesting with this is that they go to surgical teams and, and, you know, and, and they all knew the evidence. They all knew how to do it. They knew the processes. But it wasn't feeding into their kind of practice. It wasn't washing into how they were operating. And um, in every sense... <laughs> Hey, hey. <laughs> and, uh, and what, so what, what's changed in hand washing is A, they made it easy. So if you go into hospitals now, you can't move for those blinking foam dispensers everywhere, aren't they? They're all over the place. So, the, so they made it easy. And also they've, I, I don't think, has anyone had a, an, a, an operation, what they call it, a local anaesthetic operation in an operating theatre? And they run through these checklists now before, and one of them will be around the hand-washing processes. So they've, they've systematized the process of hand-washing. You have to do it. You cannot pick up a scalpel until you've ticked a box saying, yes, we've been through that process. Like, so they've, they've essentially integrated the ideas into the processes of the, of the, of the, of the operating theaters and hospitals more widely. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's as easy as that for you know, more complex things around teaching and learning, but there's something here around supporting the implementation as much as the kind of engagement. And I won't talk about this too much, but basically we found for the last five years of the F that you can get people doing... So this is like a, a process of using research in some kind of way. So fine, you've got to access it, you've got to be aware of it. You'd hope people would un understand it and be persuaded by it. Um, and then they want to be able to translate that to their context and do something with it. They want to be able to use it. Um, and basically, we find that this is where it breaks down a lot of the time. It's a translation. How, what does this mean for us? And how do we get it kind of working? And so I guess the next phase of this G2 
journey of, is to get more into supporting, getting moving people beyond just engagement, which is great, but so what? You know, I, I, I like this phrase, the practitioner is the intervention. It doesn't matter how good your idea or strategy or plan is over there. The only thing really that matters, isn't it, is that how it manifests itself in the work of people over here. Like it, it doesn't matter how good your money, it, 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 it's all about how that gets into the behaviours of, of, of the professionals in, in schools. And we basically found that just exposing people to the idea is not enough. We've done, I can show you countless failed projects where we've talked about formative assessment or we've talked about metacognition or we've, you know, run projects with research champions that kind of have seminars like this. This doesn't change practice, of course, does it? It's what, it's what happens next. It's going back, getting it, you know, it's, it's the follow-on stuff that matters. Um, and, and basically, we've, we've found that additional support is needed to translate a conceptual understanding into practical behaviours. Um, I, won't, I won't go... This is, this is hot, hot, kind of hot-off-the-press work, but I'm currently writing a practitioner's guide to implementation, if you like, and it's trying to pull together some of these insights around how do you actually get, get things working. And I guess these, these, are some of, these are some of the things that... We're, I won't go through all of them, but these are some of the things that I think... Are useful to think about. Um, you know, view, view implementation as a process, not an event. It sounds so obvious, but you know, we think professional development starts the day you turn up and go up for the training. Well, it's it's all the prior work, it's all the work you've done before. That's 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 all the it's all the kind of making the space for for the changes afterwards that are going to help. Um, and then you know, allow, particularly allowing time for preparation. I used to know this guy who's talking about these, what is it, the set, he used to have the seven Ps, what is it, the proper practice and preparation prevents poor performance, it was. Um, and, and, you know, it's all about creating that, that space and time for the, for the changes to happen. We've talked about where to be tight and where to be loose. Um, this is probably, this, I was not going through it, this is probably possibly the biggest thing, which is, you know, it's pretty clear that just doing, we were talking about this over dinner, just doing training like this doesn't really change things. It's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And it, it, you need to, it's useful because you build a kind of new ideas, you get new, new approaches, you can develop understanding. But it's only when you go back into your setting, have a go, probably get it wrong, <laughs> make some mistakes, learn, get some feedback, get better, keep, you know. It's only when you, we, so we, we're talking about training and coaching typically. So it's when you get that support afterwards to, to give it. Right. Now that's hard, isn't it? You know, it's really hard to set up follow-ups after this so you can do it. But please do. Please, it, the analogy I use on this, it's like trying to learn to drive. You know, if you would just do it, you wouldn't just do your theory. You would get in a car, you'd stall a million times. You'd get some instruction on, you know, why not to stall. And gradually you would start to take your knowledge of how to drive into your ability to how to drive. So, you know, so whenever you're structuring change, whatever it is, it's the work after the training, I think, that's crucial in, in embedding whatever ideas you're trying to develop through the training into the actual practices. And, um, yeah. But so, so keep an eye out for that. I'll, I can, you know, we can, we'll, we'll pass this through, Stuart. This is going to be finished, I think, in October. So, you, you know, it'd be great to, you'd be very welcome to, to see that and give us some feedback on how that goes. Okay, uh, right, five minutes. Um, so, so the interesting is to get Alex's thoughts on this, but 
So the next thing, I guess, the next sort of level of, of sophistication is that you can do all this work, you can have all these processes taking place in a school, but if the school isn't receptive for this, then it can be just cogs spinning in space, right? So you can, you can have, you know, you, could chain, you can train evidence champions to be, you know, you guys can be brilliant at, at looking at the data, doing evaluations, learning about how, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. But one of the things I think we're finding is that if the school isn't in a place to be able to capitalize on that, then, then you don't, it doesn't get traction on what the school's trying to do. Does that make sense? And, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm increasingly aware that there are a set of kind of preconditions where it feels as though there are a set of preconditions that need to be in place for the evidence stuff to, to be able to, to do, to get to work. Um, I don't know these things. I think this all needs looking at a lot more, actually. But, you know, at the top of my head, having a, just a culture there of innovation, of disciplined innovation that, that builds on what you've done before, you know, having a, a, just a gen, general appreciation of a precise and wise use of data, having clear and shared goals, um, and, and also priorities that are genuine priorities, because you know, yeah, a priority means that you're not going to do other things. And I guess one thing I've learned is that the bold t schools will pick something and go for it at the expense of not doing other things. <laughs> the, there's an element of kind of, right, no, we're sure that this is, we're going to give this a good go. And we're going to give it a good go. You know, we're going to really give it a chance to implement well. And, 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 say, and, and as a result, we've not been able to do other things as well. The flip side of that, though, is that when they, if it doesn't work, they're happy to stop it as well. And that's, that's, the other, that's the other thing, you know, people will keep going because there's an emotional investment in it, or and John Thompson, Alex, you know, talked about things that they put a lot of energy into, found out it's not working, and fine, you just bite the bullet and, and kind of stop it. And I don't think, I think that's a precondition. I mean, these are, you know, ability to be able to train and develop staff, knowledge of professional development, knowledge of implementation, you know, there's, it feels as though there are a set of things that have got to be there to create fertile ground for the evidence work to really kind of get traction. So I'd, I, you know, I'd, I'd like us to be able to characterize this a bit clearer, um, draw from examples from school, that schools, I think schools need to create this image as well. I don't think it needs to be researchers coming into, they need to kind of, I mean, we, we've got some great people that we're working with that are creating that image, but uh, I think that, you know, we need to get a better idea of what, what a research engaged school looks like and what it needs to have in place for the research stuff to have an impact. Oh, crikey. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making it harder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Right. St stick with me. Right. <laughs> so that, that idea that the evidence bit, so if you go back to that, so this is, I guess what I'm trying to argue is that for the evidence engagement cycle to really make a difference, it has to fit within the wider processes within the school. Right. I guess that, that is also the, the case for the whole evidence-based movement in itself, right? So, you know, this slide summarizes basically what we do at the EF. Don't worry about too much about what's on it, but basically we have processes to generate evidence and we have activities to try and support the use of it. You know, and we create these, you know, pretty diagrams where we talk about a system and, and in, in reality, you know, we so we talk about an evidence ecosystem where you've got these activities going on and you've got evidence generation going on and evidence use and you've got knowledge mobilization and it's moving between. In reality, that evidence system itself sits in a 
bloody great swamp. <laughs> right? So the, the evidence bit, you know, is, is one bit of a whole big ecosystem with massive pikes like Ofsted swimming around and assessment and funding and politics and all the other, with all their own perverse incentives and drivers. And so, you know, you, you can convince yourself that you're doing great work in here, but if it's not complementary and relevant to that wider system, it will die, like in an ecosystem. <laughs> you know, this needs to have a symbiotic relationship with the rest of the ecosystem. It needs to have a kind of mutual place in the rest of it. So, so the next, you know, as well as having an idea of what an evidence-informed school looks like, we also need to have a look, a look and, and also how the evidence bit fits within the school processes. We also need to get a better idea of how the evidence system bit fits within the whole system. And that, you know, that makes your head spin, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> and there's, lots of, there's lots of challenges to that. So that's, that's where that's, I'd like to see that too <laughs> on my list. And then the final thing, um, which is a bit kind of a randomness, is that I keep talking about this as though we know anything. And in reality, we, we ironically know very little about what works in using research. There's very little evidence on how to use evidence. A, it's, it's a real kind of, it's quite a kind of vicious irony that we don't know a lot about how to use research. Right? Um, I think th this, is a this is one of the challenges, you know, scale, rigor, cheap, pick two. <laughs> I you can get things happening, well, you can get things happening well, but you can rarely get them happening well with, this, and this operates at school and at system level. You know, it's, it's very difficult to get all those three things happening. It's even difficult to get two of them happening, let's be honest. And... Um, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of challenge. Um, so we've been, one of the things that we're trying to do is investigate different ways of trying to get research used and looking at different things around pushing research out. So how can research organizations communicate better and disseminate better? Um, what, about, what about building the capacity of schools to be able to use it? So you might call those pull factors. How do you kind of create the, the, the capacity to use the evidence? Or what about... What about the role of intermediaries, people that sit in the middle that can bridge and translate between research and practice? Kind of, you know, people that can uh, help schools find and use evidence-based approaches. And we're doing a, a whole stack of projects trying to evaluate some of those stuff. Uh, I won't talk about that, actually. Um, and, and I guess the, one of the... We, again, we're talking about this over, over dinner. There's been this almost... One, it's become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that... that um, Research use is a social process, and I, I do think it is. I do think it is, but we don't really know enough about what that actually means. And um, so there's, there's, there's been tons of efforts going into just getting researchers and teachers to interact. What does that mean? Like put them in a room, go, go and interact, go and do great things. You know, there's, a, there's no kind of idea of why, what we're trying to get out of it, what are people bring to the table, what's kind of, you know, what's the purpose of, of all of this kind of stuff. So, um, so I think one of the things I'd, I'd be great to see is trying to get beyond this and start thinking what actually, what is this more, what is the purpose of these interactions and what we're trying to do with it? Oh, crikey. Uh, skip that one. <laughs> um, um, and and we've, we've, I guess really where I'm trying to get to is that we, where we think this is going to work is uh, the, the EF and research can bring some things to the table. We can bring evidence, we can bring, you know, some, but 
to actually get that into schools, you need a whole range of different bits of expertise around how does the, what does the evidence look like, how does it get into practice. You, know, you need reaching relationships with schools. You need a whole range of stuff. And our belief is that, that this, this interaction works by working out what are your coordinated roles. What's the role of the researchers in the equation and what's the role of the kind of profession in bringing that evidence to life. And, um, and we're, we're putting a lot of effort into into this. Um, we did a kind of campaign in, in Yorkshire where we partnered with 11 partners around the region and, and they took our TA guidance that I talked about and created workshops and training and conferences and all this kind of stuff on the back of it. And, um, um, and, and some of it, when it works well, this works really well. When it works well and you find these kind of practice partners they, you know, they interpret and exemplify the evidence. They bring all this expertise that we don't have around school improvement and professional development. They bring energy and rapport. They have relations. Crucially, sc schools listen to other schools. They don't listen to research. And, and in fact, that's fine. So why not use schools as the vehicles to talk about research? If schools listen to schools, use them as the kind of gateway for, for talking about that. So, because schools have authentic relationships with colleagues, don't they? You know, teachers, heads will listen to heads. So... Some do, some do. No, that's right. I'm not. No, no, and it's, and and certainly the, the content of those conversations can be can be pretty bad. But nevertheless, them they list they tend they're more likely to talk to each other. Right, right, exactly. Completely agree. Which is which is why this is where this partnership works for us because we can hopefully bring the idea is that. The evidence can bring to that, those peer-to-peer -peer conversations some meat, some, some details, some evidence around what's effective. You need to make sure that your practice partners are your cultural architects and can really... Right. So, you're, right. So, this is, so when it works well, it does all these beautiful, lovely things. When it works badly, it goes badly in lots of different ways. <laughs> Right. We've had we've got, I could, lots of instances where what went in, the messages that went in, looked nothing like the messages that comes out. So you get this kind of Chinese whispers thing. You know. And in fact, if I'm honest, some of these practice partners have ended up reinforcing bad practice, I would, I would argue, at times. Like, I hate to say, even using our evidence. Like, so there's, there's been this kind of you know, complete distortion of the messages. Sometimes you get a cherry picking, so they're like, you know, it's just like, again, we're talking about policymakers. We, we like one little bit, so we focus on that, we ignore the rest, and you cherry pick a bit of the evidence. A kind of, um, you know, search for magic bullets and trying to oversimplify it and kind of. Um, the other one, the one at the top there is an interesting one where you can get people that can be quite authentic to the evidence, they can, you know, represent it quite accurately, but just kind of add no additional value, so they don't add any additional expertise or insights or, you know, ideas on how TA deploy, the evidence on TA deployment actually manifests itself. So you kind of hit the, hit the mark, but miss the point. You know, you can kind of, you can get all, you can do all that, but you can just, nothing changes. This, this one at the bottom, we've had projects where we've got six months into it and, and realized we, th we're talking, we think we're talking about something completely different. Like, we, we've, you know, we, what they think we're doing and what we think we're doing are completely different things. So you think you're on the same page, but you're not. You just assume that because you've talked about it a bit. That, so there's something about you know, getting a shared understanding. And then, and then the kind of last things that, that if, going back to that thing that if, if the environment is, isn't ready for it, 
you can do all this great work, but it's just bolted on or it's cogs spinning in space. So we've had, you know, work in LAs where it's just not been aligned with the wider agenda that's been going on. And it's, it just can't get any traction on what the system's trying to do or anything like that. So, you know, when it works well, it works really well. But, but, but it feels that this is where it's at for me. This is kind of what this partnership looks like, which is this kind of co-construction, which is a bit of a naff term, but I do think this is, this, this is co-creation. This is where, you know, we can bring the what, if you like, to the table, hopefully in a way that's accessible and useful. But to re if we're really going to get this moving, we need people that can bring insights on the how, you know, and the reach and relationships with schools and the kind of the insights on how this actually, the stories, we're talking about this over dinner, this needs creating into real life stories, not just abstract descriptions of the evidence base. You need that, but you need it alongside the rich pictures of what this looks like um, in practice. So thanks for, that's a random search around, <laughs> lots of different things, but um, yeah, thanks. This episode of the Evidence-Based Education podcast was recorded at our inaugural Assessment Lead Programme residential training in Durham in August 2017. For more information about the Assessment Lead Programme and our Assessment Academy, head to www.assessmentacademy.co.uk. And to keep up to date with our latest news, subscribe on iTunes to receive this monthly podcast to your device, follow us on Twitter at evidenceinedu, or find our website at www.evidencebase.education.